You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Main Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. It's great to be taken to another place, a place that doesn't exist. I mean, I actually find that incredibly inspiring. But the idea of being able to transport somebody to a world that is believable but doesn't exist is pretty heady stuff. That's the key, is that you can tell a story simply and honestly, and when it is done that way, it has a wide appeal. So it's almost like a web. You land on this one book that makes you want to find out about all sorts of other things. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 180, Illustrating Maine, airing for the first time on Sunday, February 22, 2015. If you have ever read a children's book, no doubt you know that the illustrations play an important part of the experience. Children, who are often preliterate, rely on pictures to help them learn words and develop a love of reading. Adults enjoy pictures as a means of rounding out a story. Today we speak with two award-winning illustrators, Scott Nash and Melissa Sweet, about their work and why Maine is the perfect place for them to practice their craft. Thank you for joining us. Here in Maine, it's hard to actually... um, understand just exactly how much um, well a wealth of creativity we really have it's interesting to me that I can know somebody's name and then years and years later end up meeting this person and this individual that I'm talking to Scott Nash is, is that person Scott Nash is an illustrator graphic designer and chair of the illustration department at the Maine College of Art he's also the owner of Nash box studios and he's someone that I've known about um, I don't know, it's probably got to be 15 years or so. It's the way it goes. And it's the way it goes that here you are today and I get to talk to you. And I feel really fortunate that you've been able to come in today. It's nice to be here. Scott, you are doing something that I think a lot of people have the opportunity to enjoy, which mm-hmm. is illustration and also the the book that you've written, The High Skies Adventures of Blue Jay the Pirate. Um, I'm really into short titles. Yes, I yeah, can good. see that. Yeah, um, And yet... It's something that I don't think people know that much about. They don't necessarily know why one becomes an illustrator. They don't know um, how one becomes an illustrator and how one could be an illustrator who works on um, national shows and with national organizations and live on Peaks Island the way that you do. So I'm kind of fascinated about your, how you got to be where you are. Well, let's change that. We'll, we'll let people know how, exactly how to become an illustrator in, in, uh, in Portland. I moved here about, let me give you a little history. I moved here about, gee was 20 years ago. Um, I had run a design studio down in Boston. 
and it got a little bit overwhelming for me. It was suddenly found myself managing a staff of 80 people. And uh, I really, I really define myself by, as a creative person, and what's important to me is to make things. And so basically, uh, long story short, is started trolling around looking for places and uh, had good friends that were here in Maine and found it to be not only a vital um, creative community, but a very welcoming creative community. It's not in the least bit stodgy. I mean, we got to know people that have become, you know, in the first few couple of years of be- being here that are still fast friends for us. And uh, we felt very connected to this place. And it seemed like a place where I could have sort of the best of both worlds. Um, I could have the sort of quiet time that's, that's needed to write and create and and also find a place where I could really engage and connect with a wealth of creative talent in Portland, up the coast, throughout the entire state. As a matter of fact, I sort of refer to Maine as being sort of a, a state of hidden treasures. I'm, they're constantly revealing themselves to us. And while I find that really intriguing, I also want to find a way to have them be a little bit less hidden. And that's why I'm very appreciative of being here today to talk about illustration. Well, the funny thing is, in the intro, I almost said you can't turn over a rock without finding an artist. But I thought people might think that was really negative. But I think that what you're saying is kind of the same thing. You do have to turn over rocks to find creative people here. Because sometimes we're hiding. You know, we've we've come from another place. And we're thinking that we, we want that seclusion. And actually, one of the questions on, on the survey here uh, on the, that was asked was, what would I do if I, was, if I was, could do it all over again, if I could you know, ten, go 10 years back? And it would be engage more quickly, you know, really connect with people right from the get-go. I sort of sequestered myself for a while. Um, but that now I've really, I've sort of flourished, and you'll, as, we, as we talk, you'll see that I've really um, dedicated to engaging with the community, both here in Portland and throughout the state of Maine. Well, that is an interesting, um, that is an interesting thing that I think we've talked with other artists about. There, there is this, the need to sequester and the need to have solitude and the need to create, but then also the very real need to connect. And in your case, the need to, um, to interact and to teach and to mentor and to <laughs> be a fabric in the creative community. And I'm sorry. And one of, one of the things that I do is I, 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 in my teaching is I teach my students discipline. And the discipline is actually a good thing. And the only the way to, to I am finding this is more and more true of creative people, is that we have to find a way to sort of compartmentalize our lives. So I have, you know, depending on how you count it, three jobs that I do, three passions. In the morning, I get up on a good day, make a cup of coffee, uh, you know, shuffle across the, my, our deck, which we call our commute, my wife and I call our commute, to my studio. Um, where I write for most of the morning. Uh, then in the afternoon, come into the studio uh, at Nash Box, or I head into Maine College of Art to work with the students. And then I trundle back to Peaks Island, take a boat back to Peaks, and um, spend ridiculous amount of hours at night uh, illustrating. And it seems to be a terrific time to create what I call ridiculous ideas. Uh, and I also embrace redi- the idea of you know creating ridiculous ideas. It's the well, it's it's the it's the main impetus and main catalyst for a lot of stuff, especially in kids media. 
Um, but I think it's important for creative people um, and just people in general, our lives are pretty frenetic, to find ways to give yourself time throughout the day to do specific tasks. And uh, it's worked for me, and I think it works pretty well for my students as well. I was reading The High Skies Adventures of Blue Jay the Pirate last night. <laughs> Thank you. And I know you're working on the next book. I am. Which I don't, when will that come out? It's called The Earthly Exploits. And uh, that is the question, especially on Peaks Island, where the kids come up to me and ask me if I'm on the boat, why I'm not back home writing the sequel to this. <laughs> but the, in fact, the, the, in fact it's, a, it's a longer process. I stepped into something that's far more epic than I had anticipated. And I have to say, I'm, I'm f- fairly surprised that um, I've actually written a fantasy, something that could be categorized as a fantasy adventure. Um, and now I'm on well on way, way pretty much through the second version of uh, the second uh, edition of uh, Blue Jay the Pirate, and I have a third, third one in mind as well. So there's going to be, I think, three in this series. So we don't know when the next one will come out, but you're working on it. I am. Right. I was just evading the question. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, no. It's coming out. It has It has to be finished. Um, I have to really finish this up in the next couple of months. So I'm, 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 I'm well on the way. So. Well, the thing that I like about this book, um, it, is, it is very rich in illustration. And that, to me, is wonderful because it reminds me of the books that I read when I was younger, where there was a whole world that was created and created using illustration. I think one of your earlier illustrations is of the boat that they are on, and they're lifting the, um, I believe it's the egg, um, and you you label the various parts of the boat. And this was one of the things that I so enjoyed when I was growing up was that there would be this world and an illustrator, an author illustrator, would take the time to actually configure the entire world and label it, and 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 it just it makes it so rich and layered. Well, you're speaking to what I see as one of the primary sort of uh, virtues of an illustrated book. Um, I, I just recently read a book, um, uh, What We See When We Read, by P- Peter Mendelssohn, who was suggesting that actually novels should not be illustrated, <clears throat> that we should, that when with a writer, what we should be doing is in, engaging in a collaborative process where we are imagining what, you know, basically uh, the general ideas that are laid out by the author. Um, that's fine if you have a frame of, frame of reference, if you're an adult, if you have some sort of uh, life experience. But for kids, um, it's really useful to have an illustrated world, especially if it's a fantasy realm. I mean, um, I, I'm sure that as an adult, you could imagine what pirate birds would look like but I'm guessing most people can't. And so having, I think having illustrated books helps to provide a context, to, especially to kids, for what this world is about. I used to love going through, you know, I mentioned um, uh, Treasure Island earlier. I used to love those books. Those are the books that I grew up with. And one of the things I especially appreciated about them is that the reading, the illustrations were sort of a reward to uh, I want not not that the illust- the uh, right the reading wasn't pleasurable, but it's a reward to the reading or it enhanced the reading in in very specific ways, um, and that this is a form that um, this, these are discussions that we have all the time at Maine College of Art. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about working in this program. We're all 
really passionate about narrative, about thinking about narrative, thinking about plot, thinking about character design, not only, though, in the writing realm, but in illustration as well, in drawing. And as a matter of fact, I um, teach a sort of a uh, an iterative or progressive sort of um, process where the students will use drawing as an inspiration for writing and writing as an inspiration for drawing. It really makes the whole world a little bit more real and tangible, especially when you're working, again, within a fantasy realm or with, or with you know, subjects like, you know, I've worked on books like Flat Stanley about a little boy who's flattened to an eighth of an inch thick. And I would contend that that has to be illustrated because the thought, the realistic thought of a kid being flattened to an eighth of an inch thick is not a pleasant one. And so I actually, we actually do want to control that and make sure that you know, he looks like a gingerbread boy as opposed to something else. Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Wouldn't it be great if we could spend our days doing all the things we dreamed of while gazing up at the stars on a crystal clear night? Yet for most people, and I include myself in that group, the realities of daily living prevent it from happening. We all have responsibilities to our employers, our families, people who rely on us to be there for them. But what if you could get to a place where you're able to reinvent yourself and start a new journey that was more fulfilling? What if you could define what true north meant and find your star and start walking towards it? What if you had the money to embark on a second life because financial worry had fallen off your radar? This, my friends, is what I call the seventh state of your financial evolution. And while I'm certainly not there yet, I'm here to help you get there. It's time to evolve. Get in touch with Shepherd Financial and we'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love, Maine Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. I love reading books of all different sorts, and I get a lot of um, good information, and I'm entertained. But I also, I just love a good novel. I mean, it's it's just something that I I could sit down, and I will do exactly what I used to do when I was 10, and I will just forget everything and just sit there and read this book until I am done, yeah. for no particular reason. Yeah. And I think there is something very enriching about that. Oh, sure. It's great to be taken to a new pl- an, another place, a place that doesn't exist. I mean, I actually find that incre- incredibly uh, sort of inspiring. You know, I love the idea of it turned as I, as I told you, I was surprised that I created a fantasy novel. But in some ways, it shouldn't have surprised me because I've been working on picture books for years. But the idea of being able to transport somebody to a world that is believable but doesn't exist is pretty heady stuff. 
Scott, you've talked a lot about um, being productive and scheduling yourself and the things that you do and the Strict. things that get done. And, and these are very important, especially yeah. as uh, an artist and yeah. someone who um, is self-employed to some great extent. What about the times when things aren't flowing, when you don't have the great ah, idea, when the illustration isn't readily um, coming to mind? And what what is that something that you struggle with, or is that something that? Yes, of course. I mean, there's a tendency with artists. We I think there's two different impulses. I talked about, you know, the divergent thinker. That's one sort of creativity. Another type of creative creativity is more myopic. It's called. Uh, convergent thinking, you know, that's move in on one assignment. And it, it is really, it's great to have both of those aptitudes, but sometimes when we get too much into the convergent side, you get into like going deep on something, you come up against a block because you have a narrower focus, narrower range of options. And what I suggest to any of my students or any creative person is go to your divergent side. Go to the side that is about inspiration. It's, it's Start gathering, find things, walk away, sculpt something, do, do uh, connect with some other, uh, some other, uh, one of the other aspects of your creative life. Sculpt, draw, um, sew something. Uh, of course, you can go for a walk or dance or do or play some music. I often will, you know, if I'm. If I'm uh, sort of in a rut, I will pick up any one of the number of instruments that are sort of sitting around my space and plonk away on something. And again, it gets you out of that sort of myopic sort of approach, the convergent sort of approach, and gets you thinking more expansively. I think it's important to, to touch that side of your creative soul. Make sure that you're constantly connecting and pulling things in that inevitably is a great way to sort of break um you know in what we call sort of any form of creative block the other one for me that again i mentioned i referred to this earlier and i think it really does work especially for visual artists is to write draw write draw write draw let one inform the other so if you're if you're if you're coming up against it, if you're not able to draw something, there is such a thing as, as illustrator's block as well. You know, there's, you, can't, you just can't get this thing. It, try as you might, you can't get this picture right. And then I suggest that you walk away and you start writing, especially if you're working on something that is a narrative that's where the, where the two are connected. If, you're, if it's one project, switch from one to the other. Otherwise, my advice is get out and sort of and do something else sometimes you can have the greatest epiphanies when you get out of say trying to draw something you know if you move away and then start to sculpt it the sculpt the sculpture will actually inform the drawing and add this this is not meant as a pun dimension to what you do as an illustrator as well i also wonder about times of transition you, you describe being the head of an 80-person yeah. um, design organization yeah. and then making the decision to come to Peaks Island. And, and I think that all of us go through times where something big has happened. Um, Elizabeth Peavy, I think, was one of our first guests oh. on the show. Her mother died, and for a long time, and she's an author, for a long time she couldn't write anything. She just needed to, um, she described it as uh, letting things lie fallow. And I'm wondering if in these big times of transition, there's just some 
um, permission you have to give yourself to let things, I guess, percolate away without your direct intention. When I was in grad school, uh, which is, uh, my, I came in my first year of grad school, I studied graphic design at Cranbrook. Um, the second year students were going through developing their thesis. And so it was a time of high, high emotion and neuroses and all sorts of things were sort of uh, exploding throughout the, the the department. And one day I walked in and I saw my studio mate and she was basically having a breakdown. I mean, she says, I am not worthy. I'm terrible. I, I can't, the work that I'm doing is awful. This is meaningless stuff, sobbing away. And I just didn't know what to do. One, I had two, two minds. One was there's the flight or, you know, <laughs> flight response on that. Just get out of there. I got to get out of there. Uh, I also thought, what the heck am I doing in this grad program because it's making people crazy. But what I ended up doing was, because I couldn't think of anything else, is, um, um, here, here's a book. Read it. (laughs) And I gave her, believe it or not, it was The World According to Garp. It just happened to be on my, my shelf. And she sat there, she took it, and she read it for the next whatever, 18 hours, 20 hours, obsessively. And I walked in, you know, whatever, the next day, and she was crying again. <laughs> I said, I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? And she says, oh, this book was just so good. And what was great, though, it was tears of joy, but what was great is then after that, you know, she couldn't afford to get away or anything, but the book took her to another place and she was able to sort of get it together and she ended up creating a beautiful thesis but it's like here pull yourself away from yourself for a while that's what art does get away from yourself sometimes and um and in this case you know uh, john irving did the trick thank you john irving it got me through my my uh, graduate uh experience as well Scott, you're the chair of the illustration department at the Maine College of Art, and that to me means that Mecca has made a commitment to illustration as an art form. Maine is has had illustrators um, for forever. Oh yeah, and will have illustrators coming up forever. So talk to me about the legacy of illustration. Well, you know, Maine has the distinction of attracting some incredible artists. I mean, we all know this. We know that it attracts a lot of fine artists. You know, there, there's um, the legacy of Monhegan Island and the painters there and such. But I think uh, probably something that's lesser known is the incredible wealth both from a legacy standpoint, but also this continues to this day. There's incredible wealth of illustrators and writers, uh, specifically in the children's book realm throughout Maine. Um, I mean, we all know, you know, part of my, I think part of my attraction to Maine was Robert McCluskey's books about Maine. You know, it's like, I want to jump off the docks. I want to do this. I want to be part of that world. So, you know, Robert McCluskey was a big inspiration. Again, everybody should know that Robert McCluskey resided in Maine, you know, make way for ducklings, all of that stuff. There's Dolophip Carr. Um, Rockwell Kent, who's known for his painting, but is also an exquisite graphic artist and illustrator. Um, and then, of course, N.C. Wyeth and the Wyeth family, but N.C. Wyeth in particular, who's one of the great masters of illustration. Um, you know, again, it won't surprise surprise anyone that, that, uh, that we've quietly built over the years 
quite a group, quite a cohort of of illustrators here in Maine. I mean, we've got, you know, just at, at Maine College of Art, we have people like Stephen Costanza, Jamie Hogan, uh, Douglas Smith. Uh, Douglas isn't working at, at Maine College of Art, but these are some of the illustrators, you know, sort of renowned illustrators, Marianne Lloyd, um, that are residing here and, you know, making, not only are they making their artwork here, but they're creating a, we're starting to create a very cohesive community. And part of what I'm trying to do at Maine College of Art is to increase, not only build a very strong illustration department, but also increase awareness about illustration and the value of illustration. I mean, I think in some ways Maine could we could sort of claim that we are, you know, one of the centers of illustration. I mean, really, there are that many illustrators in this area. And so what we're trying to do at Maine College of Art is to create um, more sort of awareness, advocate for illustration as an art form. Uh, We're doing that in a number of ways. Um, We've initiated a series of uh, exhibitions that are at the Portland Public Library. Two years ago, we brought the Edward Gorey exhibition here, which was a wild success. We, we attracted about 50,000 people. to. The, I'm sorry, that one was 33,000 people, actually. Then it was followed by a Maurice Sendak show, which actually did attract about 50,000 people. And then the most recent one was was actually one of my personal favorites, was a was sort of a comprehensive uh, exhibition of the art of pulp fiction from the 30s and 40s. Next year, we're planning to do a show on uh, its, its 150th anniversary of uh, Alice in Wonderland. And so we're going to do a show called Wake Up Alice, which is a uh, contemporary illustrator's view on Alice in Wonderland. But we, we not only have created a strong department at, at Maine College of Art, we're also um, you know, creating exhibitions, creating film series, uh, and uh, starting to, I'm also creating a, a resource, sort of a repping site, so that uh, uh, people, you know, companies like Maine Magazine or any number of media companies could connect with very easily with the creative talent in illustration that exists here uh, throughout Maine. Well, it sounds like you're doing exciting things um, personally, professionally, educationally. It sounds like you really have just a lot of um, richness to your your life as, as a person. I'm very grateful for it. And this and this place actually affords me the opportunity to be that sort of, you know, to have sort of to to step into all of these realms. Your wife, Nancy Gibson Nash, is a collage artist and illustrator. Mm-hmm. Does it help to be married to a fellow artist? Or <laughs> it does. I, I mean, I've seen it. I've I've heard it go sort of both ways in that realm. I think the fact of the matter that I think what really works for Nancy and I is that we've been dear friends for years. We've known each other for many many years, but our disciplines are very different. Um, I draw. She gathers. Th- she makes pictures by gathering things together. Um, she. We used to. I, I joke that we used to call her a collage artist. But since she's moved to Peaks Island and gathers most of her materials from the shoreline, we call her instead of an as- as- assemblage artist. We call her a flotsamblage artist. 
and she gathers a lot of inspiration from the place. The truth is, with with uh, Nancy's um, connection to artwork, is that um, I think that she has sort of a pure sense of creation in that. She really is not really as interested in the business side of, of making art. I think if she had her way, she, everything would be given to people. And she's got an incredibly generous spirit. That said, she's also, um, you know, she, she has her creative practice, you know, her collage work, her flotsamblage work. But then um, we also work together uh, at, at Nashbox. She's, uh, she does most of the client work and a lot of the creative work as well there. So um, we, we've, we've managed to, I think because, I think we're a case of, of definitely opposites complementing one another. I think we've got you know, different perspectives but have a great and deep appreciation for each other's perspectives on the, on the world. I'm more idea-based. She's more you know, uh, intuitive and, and exceedingly giving. So. Scott, how can people find out about the work that you're doing and your 30 children's books and your your novel for children, I guess fantasy, My fantasy genre, fantasy genre, the next two that are coming and all the work that you're doing. I've got uh, probably too many websites. Um, there's the Blue Jay the Pirate website, uh, which I would encourage people to go to, not only for the artwork and, and the story that I've created, but most, I actually think it's worth it to go to see the artwork the kids have created around Blue Jay the Pirate. Um, and then there's uh, our studio, which is uh, Nashbox, which you can be found at nashbox.com. And then uh, my website is scottnash.com, and Nancy's is nancygibsonnash.com. We got all those URLs very early on. <laughs> so, and then uh, I would also encourage people to check out the Facebook page for uh, Maine College of Art um, Illustration. We call it uh, Illustration Mecca. And, um, and of course, check, uh, take a look at the Maine College of Art website as well, which is mecca.edu. Well, is I that think, too many? I think that just about covers it. <laughs> at the very least, if people um, have an interest in knowing more about you, they can Google you. You're Scott Nash. Yes. And it sounds like any number of things will come up for them, yeah. too, if they want to find out more. A rabbit um, hole. A rabbit <laughs> just hole, right just like Alice in <laughs> yeah, Wonderland. Exactly, yeah, exactly, um, it's really been great to, to talk with you. I Likewise. know that um, it's it's such a fascinating thing to know that there are so many people with very different sorts of creative uh, spirits that are um, in the state of Maine. And I think that it's appropriate that we finally have Scott Nash on Love Maine Radio. <laughs> Having now picked up this book, it must be three years ago. I knew you'd eventually make it here. We've, we've called you here in spirit and you are here. So, um, Thank you. It's been... We've been speaking with Scott Nash. He's an illustrator, graphic designer, and chair of the illustration department at Maine College of Art. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk and just looked up. I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind 
and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. As radio show listeners know, I am a huge fan of children's books. Not just because I have children, but also for my own personal (laughs) entertainment. Today we have with us Melissa Sweet, who has illustrated more than 100 children's books, from board books to picture books and nonfiction titles. Her collages and paintings have appeared in the New York Times, Martha Stewart Living, Madison Park Greetings, Smilebox, and Eboo Toys. She's written and illustrated three books, Balloons Over Broadway, The True Story of the Puppeteer of Macy's Parade, Tupelo Rides the Rails, and Carmine, A Little More Red, a New York Times Best Illustrated in 2005. Melissa lives with her husband in Rockport. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I, You don't look that old to me, so the fact that you've illustrated more than 100 books and written three of them and working on a fourth, you're a very productive individual. Well, I've been doing it for 35 years, so if we spread it out, it, it, it's, it's a busy schedule, but not, not, not undoable, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you must like it, though. I think that's the thing that strikes me, is that nobody can be that productive unless it's something that you really enjoy doing. I really love it. I, I always loved the book as a art form, so I have such freedom that I can't imagine doing anything else for the I get to. I really get to stretch out and create creatively, and and do exactly the kind of art I want to do, and think about the size of the book. The whole nine yards is really mine, and and the designers um, after I'm finished. But um, it's pretty fun. When we were preparing for this show, we looked in our local paper, and lo and behold, there's a picture of you, and you recently won um, a Caldecott Award. Is that that's kind of a big deal? It's a really big deal in the children's book world. It's um, it's definitely the Oscars for the children's book world. So the American Library Association has what they call the Youth Media Awards, and those are announced in January every year. And that's when we find out who – it's the biggies, the Newbery for, for the uh, – text and the Caldecott for the art. And so there's an award and an, and several honor books. And this year, my book, The Right Word, was uh, garnered a um, Caldecott honor. So there were six other, six books in that category. And there's the, uh, the award went to a man named Dan Santat for a book called Beagle. It was a really great book. Yeah. You also won the Robert Siebert Medal for The Right Word. Yeah, so The Right Word is a biography of Peter Marc Roger, the man who invented the thesaurus. And the Cyber Award is for informational books or nonfiction, but it can be a little hazy um, in that that category. So um, 
so it was incredible, really. It means that we got the material uh, down, basically. That 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 it was uh, that it garnered the cyber. It means that, te- in, in, as far as nonfiction goes, we got it. A River of Words, which is another book that you illustrated, got the Caldecott honor previously. Yes, that was in 2009, and A River of Words is the story of William Carlos Williams, the poet, and that was, um, it's always incredible when the award, the call comes in and you're, you find out you've gotten this award, but with each of these books, they've, you know, you put a lot into them, um, not just not just in creating them artistically, but there's a lot of research behind it all for me and for the author and for and the publisher. I mean, we're all in on getting it as accurate as possible, yet telling a story that's appealing to kids. I mean, to be honest, I knew William Carlos Williams' poems, but it had never occurred to me that you could do a children's book for kids. Um, and and uh, that's, I think, a really exciting part of the industry now is that all, there's almost no subject that we can't, if it's properly crafted, become a, a, a children's biography, children's story. Yeah. Of all the books that um, you have illustrated, you forwarded some books for me to look at, which I thought it was interesting that two of them were actually about doctors, doctors who were known for not only being doctors, but one was William Carlos Williams, who was known as Dr. Williams, and the other was Roger, who we think of as the thesaurus guy, but exactly. he was Dr. Roger. Right. I, I know. I thought. I think that's amazing too. And it, what I love about it is, both of those men had to make a living, and they chose those the profession of medical doctor. I mean, really different eras. So Roger was 15 when he went to med school. Med school in the you know early 1800s was a totally different picture than it is today. So, and then yes, um, William Carlos Williams was uh, a general practitioner. So he would be the doctor that you might have grown up, you know, walking to his house where his office was, and he delivered something like 3,000 babies. So I think that's amazing. But yet, William Carlos Williams would. Constantly wrote poems, so he would be driving to someone's house for a house call, pull off on the side of the road, and work on a poem. Uh, Roger was really—I think the word I want is polymath. He invented the slide rule. He was a doctor. He invented a chess set that could travel. Um, he had his hands in a lot of pies, and all this time he's collecting these words classifying them and then eventually he was it was fairly late in life when he created the his thesaurus that eventually got published so i love that they had all these creative endeavors yet they um they also made their mark uh, creatively with roger also he he was a list maker It was fun to read about that because I think those of us who like making lists, you know, it's some way of kind of ordering maybe a possibly disorderly world that we live in. This guy did that, and he also seemed to like timelines. (laughs) Yeah, so when Roger was, you know, growing up, a young man, he'd become a doctor, and he was making all these lists. This was around the time of Darwin making all his discoveries. I, th- I believe Roger knew Darwin's father, Erasmus Darwin, and also um, Linnaeus was 
predates him, but also a famous classifier. And at that time, when I think it's so interesting to think about, we look out, we walk outside our door and we look at the world. These people, scientists and others, were looking at the world and really categorizing it. So nature for them had all this interconnectedness, this small, small details that we th- we just take for granted. We can open a book and find this information, but they were really creating the information for these books. It's it's pretty exciting time, the time of enlightenment. I mean, I, I think I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. It's fun for me to read the books that you've illustrated because the words are one thing, but then there's almost like a side story that goes along with the illustrations that you create. And it really just it just creates a much bigger picture of mm. the story itself. Thank you. I I, I do um, start out with the intention of creating depth. So there's the depth of the pictures and also the words, but there's also substories. So, for instance, you're holding a, pa- a spread right now, and I'm you, you see the London in the background peppered throughout the background. We don't have to say they're in London and what time of year it is. That can all happen through the art. There's um, a small map at the beginning to show a, a short journey after Roger's father dies and he they go back to um, uh, uh, London, the London area. And so we don't, so what's fun in a children's book is you can do this layering where not everything has to be spelled out. In fact, it's probably more potent if it's not, if we keep the text fairly svelte and we look at other ways to tell the story. I, I think that we have that freedom in a book like this is amazing. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. You wrote a book about um, the guy who invented, essentially, the Macy's Day Parade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you did it, at least in part, because you had your own interests in puppetry and marionettes and, and that media. That's a little unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, th- possibly I have always been interested in the in th- three dimensional pieces that look like toys or Rube Goldberg esque sculptures. That kind of idea of movement, and 
I had marionettes when I was a kid. My cousins gave them to me in a theater, and I remember the f- holding them, and all I, c- I couldn't wait to take them apart and put them back together again. I had really no interest in the, the theater of puppetry, but I wanted to figure out how they were made and how they moved. So I was actually, um, the, the story is that I work for a toy company called Ibu, and the art director there told me about this man, Tony Sarg, and she said, oh, he's a great puppeteer, and he was a brilliant illustrator, and oh, kind of by the way, he's the man that invented the Macy's Parade Balloons. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I thought I'd never thought about who invented those parade balloons. And the fact that he was a, a marionette maker as well just seemed so incongruous from this very small, detailed, um, movable you know, uh, puppet to these gigantic, iconic balloons. So when I began to research him, there wasn't a whole lot of information about him. I had to really piece together his story, which is kind of exciting. I felt like I felt like somebody had put an uncut diamond in my lap that I, I, I was really careful about not talking about him too much, but still find, trying to find out information about him. I just felt it was sort of precious information, just that I thought, there's really a book here, but I have no idea what it is. And in the end, I had really fallen for not only him as an artist, but the volume of work he created, the housewares, the um, the work he did for Macy's, the you know um, dishes and all the design. I really, he was a designer. I loved his illustrations. I loved his puppets. But then the idea of the Macy's Parade, I, I had to find out what, what was the inception of that. What was the where where did that start? And he had his hand in it from the beginning. So the story for in my book. And the story we thought would appeal to kids most is that idea of who was he as a kid? You know, a kid who loved motion and was always rigging up things, making puppets. His He had a lot of toys. His grandmother had a toy collection. So we start there, and then it, it, it just seems so natural that this would be the person that would come up with these iconic balloons. And really, he was, de- he was solving a design problem, which I loved. So that was... It was incredibly exciting. I still am quite smitten with him. Yeah, and that that love of movement and three dimensions, I I uh, used in my collages the idea of um, you were kind of are walking into his studio. So the the collages were very three dimensional, and they were photographed to give the feeling of uh, what it might be like to you know be amongst this paraphernalia. His work also was influenced by the blimp. Absolutely. So we're going back to the early 1920s now, and the Goodyear blimp was filled with helium, and that gave him the idea for the Macy's Parade balloons. The first balloons were filled with air, and they were paraded down the street, propped up with sticks, kind of like an Indonesian shadow puppet. It would remind you of that. So there were handlers dressed in costumes, and they'd these balloons were... Um, gigantic, really, nothing like anybody had ever seen before. But then they wanted to get the balloons higher. So no one had ever made a helium balloon. No one, no one had ever thought of it. 
He goes back to Goodyear, Tire and Rubber Company, who made the Goodyear blimp, and they say, yeah, we think we can do this. So what I love about this story is there was no dry run. And, you know, at a time when no one knew, were they going to, like, take off? Were they going to uh, collapse? How much helium did they need? There was none of that. They just were winging it. And that's such a refreshing thought, I think, in this time with this litigious world of ours that they just went for it. It was like a um, the ultimate performance art, really, you know. And and uh, yeah, so here we, that forevermore, there were those parade balloons. You're not originally from Maine. No, I am a New Jersey native. And I came here for a summer job to work at the Jordan Pond House. And I, um, I cooked there a li- for just a year or two and um, and stayed at, so back and forth a little bit from Boston and but but really from then on my toe was in Maine so I've lived here full time a long time and how you judge it because sometimes it was summers and sometimes it was all the time but yeah for the for the better part of the last 30 years for sure so what was it about? the Jordan Pond House or Acadia or Maine or what what brought you up here what kept bringing you up here until you finally settled in well I grew up in suburbia so there was a little bit of uh there were some woods and there was places to go on our bikes but I remember getting north of Boston and into Maine and it just seemed to go on forever the woods and the it was it was breathtakingly beautiful I had spent time at the Jersey Shore, but never seen the ocean from that that granite, craggy coastline. And Acadia is just magical. And to spend to have the freedom to spend a summer there, and have all that downtime to take a hike between lunch and dinner or after dinner, you go up a mountain. I think that it, it's really wonderful. It's a really really wonderful place to land in your early twenties. And I never get tired of the landscape. You're working on um, a piece about E.B. White. I am. I am. I am incredibly lucky. So talk about landscape. If there was anybody that recreated a sense of place, I think it's E.B. White. His writings of Maine, the especially uh, One Man's Me, I just... I never get tired of them. They take my breath away with every reading. I hear something new. And I think that I have absolutely seen Maine through his eyes. I've seen it differently. I've seen it more acutely. Not that I didn't appreciate it before, but there, there, it's almost impossible to read E.B. White and, and uh, not come away altered in some way. So this book that I'm working on is an illustrated biography. It's heavily illustrated with my artwork, archival photos, and a lot of quotes by E.B. White. So it's chronological, and it's in chapters. So I'm thinking it's about starting age seven or eight up. It, it goes from his youth to Cornell University, and how he began, you know, how he, you know, the genesis of him as a writer, and the New Yorker and on, and his love of Maine and New York, and uh, and I think uh, we've peppered it with his quotes to give kids, first of all, an opportunity to, to read him, read his more adult work, which I think is completely accessible for lots of ages. 
and we've picked pieces that are appropriate to whatever wherever he was in his life. Some are in hindsight, some are right when he was a certain age, he wrote them, and that's the quote we've used. But I think that that uh, gives it, like we were talking about depth in wrote the the right word, I think it's giving this book the depth we were hoping for. So it's not not really a simple biography. It's really a, in, it has a lot of layers. It's really wonderful that I, as an adult, can sit down and spend, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes with a children's book and learn something that I didn't know anything about before. I mean, obviously, I, I'm, I've heard of the poet William Carlos Williams and heard of Roger and his thesaurus. I know about the Macy's Day Parade, but it's something so simple, yet um, it just expands one's mind in such an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's so accessible not yes. just to children, but to adults. Yes, I thank you. I th- that's a huge compliment, and I think that my editor and my publisher would love to hear you say that. Because we wor- we work, you know. E. B. White said something. Uh, I'm not going to get this quote exact, but it's something that children are a demanding audience, and they're the hardest audience. You can't talk down to children. You have to talk up, really, and and I think that. That's the key, is that you can tell a story simply and honestly, and it does have, and when it is done that way, it has a wide appeal. So it somebody can now, say you were 13 and you read A River of Words about William Carlos Williams, that's an invitation to go see more of his poems or read an adult biography. For a kid, it's a, a young child, maybe six or seven to read that biography, then an opportunity to find other poets, other doctors who did other things. So I think they have this wonderful, um, it's almost like a web that you, you, you land on this one book that makes you want to find out about all sorts of other things. So I th- that's a, thank you for saying that. It's also so important um, as an adult reading with a child to be able to capture both of both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, before a child can read himself, to be able to sit down and have a book that you both enjoy, and maybe for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it's it's something that we don't think about. We think, okay, our audience is kids. Mm-hmm. Somehow you've managed to to pull both of those in with these books. Thank you. It's sort of intuitive. I mean, I don't think that, I don't think about that when I'm creating the art. I'm thinking, what do I I like? Here's another E.B. White quote. Uh, you know, he wrote for an audience of one. I would like, I would like to think that when I really uh, am sure how to approach a book, I am doing it for my, it, it is for me. Knowing that if I, if I nail it, everyone will love it. But it, I have to be, you know, I'm the ultimate critic. So I shoot for making art that pleases me to no end, that I am really engaged with, and that I will go to any length for. It, it, it's, it's really, there's no, it's not a job that way. It's kind of a lifestyle. So for instance, if I, just an aside with the right word, I knew on the cover, I needed, I needed the, uh, um, 
I needed it to look like a book. I needed it to look like a thesaurus. But I didn't have the I didn't have the ability to work to make a leather binding that might look like an 18th century binding. So I went to um, great lengths to find the right bookbinder to create that for me and other pieces in the book. And now that just you know that that small detail is everything. To, you, you just you just never you just don't cut any corners. So. I think in the end, you, 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 all those details come together to make the book sing in a way that might not if you just were, you know, under deadline and not to and just going to get it out. It's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I'm not really saying that very well. Why do I want to say that? I think it just shows up that you take, the, you take that kind of care in crafting the book. As I was um, reading about you, learning more about you, I was, I was very glad to hear that you enjoyed doing spirograph and color forms and paint by number kits when you were younger. These are all things that I remember doing myself and actually went and bought a spirograph just the other day so I could do it again as a something year old older lady here. Um, I think that the nice thing about things like that is that they make art accessible to all of us, even those of us who maybe don't feel like we have an artistic bone in our bodies. That's a great way to say it, actually, because each of those things that you just talk, all those they're toys and we're playing and it doesn't matter what the outcome is the the fun of it is learning how to use the tool or play with those shapes or um and really you're designing you're you're creating a design in spite of yourself and that's a that's a fantastic thing so you're learning two-dimension design pattern texture that's all there is to do to become an artist. I mean, you have to play with those concepts. I think those toys are amazing. I hope kids are still playing with them. Well, they are at my house. It's not That's just awesome. me. Even though my children are all older now, they all look at my spirograph and they all want to take out their pens yes. when they come over. Yes. So. Well, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. Um, we've been speaking with Melissa Sweet, who has illustrated more than 100 children's books. Melissa, how can people find out about the work that you're doing? You can find me at melissasweet.net. And um, when you're on my site, you'll find my books, and it's easy to find me on Amazon as well. Well, congratulations on your well-deserved Caldecott Award. And thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you, Lisa. It's been great. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 180, Illustrating Maine. Our guests have included Scott Nash and Melissa Sweet. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Read about Scott in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Illustrating Maine show. In upcoming weeks, look forward to our conversations with Anne Gable Allaire, Bill Allaire, and Deborah Heffernan, and learn how their lives were forever changed by the heart transplantation process. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. 
Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com for details. <laughs> ¶¶